I don't like to start with my gloves, so I, I start racing. Um, For maximum tannage, I guess. <laughs> Fuel faster without them. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 138 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who starts stages without their gloves. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash data. And I want to make a quick note of why there has been an absence or a lack of shows over the last couple of weeks. I'm back from a little sabbatical. There's not a lot to report. Coaching has been keeping me busy, as has the first half of the NRS season as performance director with Mobius Future Racing. The team has had a solid start, and now we're planning for the second half of the season. So that's starting to get underway again. The only other bit of news that concerns the show is that I am... Um, officially taking the show off the weekly hook. I should have said this before I had a little break, but now you know it doesn't mean the show is going anywhere. You will just have to readjust your expectation about weekly shows. But enough about all of that. Let's get into the performance probe. And probe number one, a review called Training and Competing in the Heat from the Journal of Sports Medicine, July 2015, Volume 45, I jumped at the chance to check this out after reporting on heat acclimatization studies recently. This has been at the top of my mind. That and it's been an average of high 30s here for the last two months. So I've been a little more interested in these studies. But I have been reading a lot of conflicting studies. So this review is very timely. They go on to say, exercising in the heat induces thermoregulatory and other physiological strain that can lead to impairments in endurance exercise capacity. The purpose of this consensus statement is to provide an up-to-date recommendation to optimize performance during sporting activities undertaken in hot ambient conditions. This next line is one of the most important sentences that they've written, and I've highlighted it. The most important intervention one can adopt to reduce physiological strain and optimized performance is to heat acclimatize. Heat acclimatization should comprise repeated exercise heat exposures over one to two weeks. In addition, athletes should initiate competition and training in eu-hydrated states, which is a normal state of body water content, and minimize dehydration during exercise. The review goes on to say that the benefits of heat acclimatization are achieved via increased sweating and skin blood flow responses, plasma volume expansion, and hence improved cardiovascular stability. This is better ability to sustain blood pressure and cardiac output and fluid electrolyte balance. The recommendations include... Athletes planning to compete in hot ambient conditions should heat acclimatize. This is repeated training in the heat to obtain biological adaptions, lowering physiological strain and improving exercise capacity in the heat. Heat acclimatization sessions should last at least 60 minutes per day and induce an increase in body core and skin temperatures as well as stimulate sweating. 
Most adaptions develop in the first week of heat acclimatization and more slowly in the subsequent two weeks. Adaptations develop more quickly in highly trained athletes up to half the time compared with untrained individuals. Consequently, athletes benefit from only a few days of heat acclimatization but may require six to ten days to achieve near-complete cardiovascular and pseudomotor adaptions and as such two weeks to optimize aerobic performance in hot ambient conditions. What do they mean by hot ambient conditions? 40 degrees Celsius, 10% relative humidity for 9 to 12 consecutive days increases exercise capacity from 48 to 80 minutes. The majority of benefits, this is the heart rate, core temperature, last for 2 to 4 weeks. There are also hydration and cooling recommendations in the review. These are practical and easy to adapt to your training, so I will link to the full article in the show notes. Now, probe number two is a blog post called A Critical Analysis of the Added Ingredients in Sport Drinks from MJ Nutrition. Keep in mind that this is a UK-based blog. This post covers an analysis of the added ingredients in existing sports drinks, most of which have been mentioned on this show in recent podcasts on supplements, but it's interesting to see what is actually in drink form and available now but I do think most of these drinks are just available in the UK. The author starts with the primary constituents of a sports drink, which are carbohydrate, water, and electrolytes. First bit of interesting information that, in actual fact, post-race, a normal mixed meal would be sufficient in restoring electrolyte balance. So the electrolyte content of sports drinks is often over-exaggerated. That said, in longer duration events, electrolyte replenishment may be necessary. This is backed up in the post. This is backed up in the post, as is... All of the ingredients that he talks about, the author uses certain studies to make a comparison between what has been recommended and what is available. I'm not going to go into the studies or their recommendations because if you want to dig a little bit deeper, you can check out the link in the show notes to do that. But I am going to go through and check out his comparison between what the study recommends and what's available. First up, caffeine, and manufacturers commonly include caffeine in doses of 50 to 100 milligrams in sports drinks and gels, meaning the average 70 kilogram athlete would require anywhere between two and eight gels or drinks to obtain the optimal dosage. So perhaps lone caffeine supplementation in the form of Pro Plus would be a more effective method. Interestingly, High Five, who produce Energy Source, which he recommends based on its favorable carbohydrate content, also produce an energy source extreme, which boasts 47 grams of carbohydrates per 50 gram sachet and a caffeine dosage of 150 milligrams per 50 gram sachet. Ultimately, of all existing formulations, this product provides the most scientifically supported carbohydrate and caffeine content at a required rate of carbohydrate intake at most two sachets Per hour, you will obtain an ergogenetic dosage of caffeine of 300 milligrams, or you could just take two tablets of Pro Plus, which contain 100 milligrams of caffeine. I assume they're similar to no dose. Nitrates. A number of manufacturers include nitrates in dosages close to the required active dose of 
300 milligrams in their respected drinks, gels, and shots. Science in Sport, for example, includes a dosage of 250 milligram nitrates per go gel plus nitrate product. This combined with a carbohydrate dosage of 20 grams, not exactly optimal in regards of carbohydrate dosage. The evidence appears to suggest these products are only effective in untrained or moderately trained individuals. Further studies are required to confirm this. It also appears that chronic, as opposed to acute ingestion, is required to optimize the ergogenetic effect. So science in sport, for example, gets close, but it's not close enough. And I'm not going to go through the rest of the list, but if you do go down through the rest of the list, there is no drinks that match any scientific studies that have shown positive effects for any of the supplements or ingredients added in there. It's a really interesting oversight when you think that if you look at what you're consuming, maybe they're using a bit of marketing to get you to buy the product and use the product, but actually it's probably the same as a placebo or not even taking it at all, but mentally you may be thinking that you're getting some type of benefit. So if they all fail, how do you get it into your system? For me, this means that the only real solution is making your own supplement stacks from individual supplements. And then if they're powder form or pill form, you have to find the best time and what you could mix them with in order to get them into your routine. And they're actually effective based on the empirical evidence that has been presented to this point. So the next time you go out and buy a product that has one of these miracle supplements in it, check out how much it has. Try and find a study to match it and see if it's going to be any good. Otherwise, you might just straight up be wasting your money. I just enjoy to ride my bike. With that, I challenge myself with some crazy races that are out there to do. And This is Dave Huss, no relation to Nathan. Um, the Race Across America is the hardest, most challenging of all the races. The Race Across America, also known as RAM, is a 3,000-mile long race from Oceanside, California to Annapolis in MD. I don't know what. MD stands for, but there are no planned stops. Racers stop when they want, they go when they want, and it's as simple as the first one to get to the finish line wins. The overall idea of the race is to really race as many hours as you can and to sleep as little as you can and constantly move forward. And that's the crux of the performance needed to do well in the RAM. My initial plan for the uh, race is to um, start in California and ride 35 to 40 hours straight, sleep for about two hours, and then ride about 22 hours a day and then do that to the finish line. In practice, racing 22 hours a day for nine days or so leaves a lot of room for optimization. We are talking about racing at 300 watts for 22 hours a day and trying to squeeze out seconds or minutes. A ram racer is potentially talking hundreds of miles and hours of advantage. There's a strategy to long-distance racing and that has always been based off intuition. Well, until now. Haas has partnered with IBM for the insight and foresight that using data and analytics can provide. IBM have married the sensor data from Haas's bike, biometrics, and forward-looking weather conditions. Haas and his crew then have the best information to make decisions about racing and about resting. 
There's an important point which I will touch on later, so I'll repeat it so it sticks in your mind. Haas and his crew then have the best information to make decisions about racing and about resting. The goal of this partnership is to combine the output of data from Dave and his bike with external data such as location, terrain and weather data and figuring out how to get the best performance out of Dave's engine becomes a prediction and optimization problem. With all the data that's available to Dave, he can predict and optimize when he expends energy, for what duration, when he rests and what food intake he needs to meet his milestones across the country. But where do you start with a problem like this? Let's take a look from IBM's side. To many people, analytics means looking at data, finding trends. We want to move farther. We want to move to decision making. This is Jean-Francois Puget, chief architect of analytics solutions at IBM, talking about data for decision making. Decisions for who, though? We will get to that. But As you can probably tell, Puget is the one that was putting the analytics side of things together. And when he started, he started with three questions. What data can we access? What insights can we gain from that data? And what key decisions does Dave make during the race? That last question is a great place to start when undertaking any big data analytics project. What decisions do we want to improve to get the outcomes we want? What are the right questions for Dave to answer? To find out, they first had to get a complete understanding of the RAM. Like I said, RAM is a non-stop cycling race. It's more than 3,000 miles long. It goes from Oceanside, California to Annapolis, Maryland. The route is fixed, but racers can stop when and where they want along the route. So why not ask this about your discipline as well? What decisions do you want to improve to get the outcomes you want? The most important decisions for Ram was when Dave should rest. Dave will race for eight or nine days and you'll only sleep around two hours a day. So rest is vital to restore energy and power. But when Dave rests, he is not moving. And as time goes by, so can other riders. So it becomes a must to balance the two competing goals. Have Dave rest, restoring him to a higher level of power to increase his speed. Keep Dave on the course as much as possible, increasing his distance ridden. Making decisions while balancing conflicting goals is a great use case for decision optimization, an analytics method focusing on computing the best options in any given situation. To help with this, IBM developed a decision optimization model that helps find optimal times for Dave to rest during RAM. This model sees Dave as an engine whose power declines as he rides and increases when he rests. So to create the decision optimization model, they needed data about how Dave's power evolves when he rides and when he rests. This is where the Internet of Dave comes into play. And this is derived from the Internet of Things, which is an increased machine-to-machine communication built on cloud computing and networks of data-gathering sensors. It's mobile, virtual, and instantaneous connection. So not only does Dave have the usual bike sensors that are recording and transmitting, like speed, cadence, and power, he wears a bio-harness from Zephyr that has has multiple physiological measurements such as heart rate, 
respiration rate, and it estimates core temperature. Data from these were collected over months during Dave's training rides, then analyzed, and this resulted in solid estimates about how Dave's power evolves. So back to the questions asked by Jean-Francois Peugeot. They can close the loop with these answers. What data can we access? Internet of Dave sensor data, including Dave's medical condition and the power he is able to deliver. What insights can we gain from that data? How Dave's power evolves and when Dave is riding and when he is resting. What key decisions does Dave make during the race? When to rest to help him finish the race as early as possible. So how about you? What answers can help you make better decisions? Let's consider that you don't have a bio-harness and you just use the standard sensors available to cyclists. And I'm going to make up some answers here just to hopefully prompt you a little bit. What data can you access? Sensor data, heart rate, cadence, speed, power. What insights can you gain from the data? How does your power evolve after certain efforts, like when you burn a match? What key decisions do you make during a race? When to sit in to help you finish the race with a lead group or when to attack or when to stop altogether. The analytics which help Dave and us are descriptive analytics, which is simply the training data. Predictive analytics is the power data or even the training load changes over time that you experience. And the most important in races is decision optimization. It's not just Dave, though. There are a few factors at play here. We aren't talking about a velodrome. The effects of wind are obvious to every cyclist. If the wind's a tailwind, you're going to ride faster. If it's a headwind, you're going to be in a lot of physical and mental anguish. The effects across a race of any distance can be dramatic, let alone the ram. The gradient of the road is also important here. You start to get a picture of other areas that affect Dave and his race. So to evaluate the importance of these effects, they model Dave's speed precisely as a function of his power, his weight, his air penetration coefficient, his bike friction coefficient, the road's slope the wind strength and the wind's direction. This model incorporating physical laws is quite precise as long as it's fed with accurate data. The Internet of Dave provides some of that data. Beyond that, the weather company provides data about the current and forecast weather. It provides wind information, speed, direction, and temperature, and RAM organizers provide GPS data that they use to compute slope, from which they were able to map out the elevation along the entire course. Their model, in combination with all of this data, can predict when Dave will cross the finish line if he maintains constant power and never rests. They ran the model with three scenarios at constant power. No wind, constant headwind at 10 miles per hour, and constant tailwind at 10 miles per hour. In the windless scenario, Dave takes about seven and a half days to complete the race. With a headwind, he takes about one day longer, and with a tailwind, he takes about one day less. So this shows the importance of wind as a predictor of performance. In 2006, Dave faced the worst weather in the history of Ram when crosswinds gusted up to 80 miles per hour across the plains of Kansas. Ever-changing and highly variable conditions make a clear case for using what foresight they can. So they will use weather forecast data to compute expected headwinds and tailwinds along the route. The influence of wind on Dave's performance must be done as he goes. 
Picking the right time to rest during the race will be much, much harder. The road isn't straight or flat and wind evolves continuously. Now, remember when I said to remember an important point that I would touch on later, and this is it. All of this analytics work means Haas and his crew then have the best information to make decisions about racing and about resting. Why is this important? Because analytics is not the final decision maker. This is the combination of man and machine. Maybe our machines for this work aren't even at the artificial narrow intelligence level yet, but the solution can help Dave and his crew make decisions, but ultimately it is they who will decide whether to follow the model's rest and ride recommendations. Analytics simply assist them by providing a better way of evaluating all available options and though it might look like a lot of work Dave is the one that has to ride across America and as of this recording a couple of days away from the finish Dave was sitting in second about 100 miles or 160 kilometers behind first place if you are listening to this before June 22 2015 check out the link to Dave's live analytics dashboard it is pretty cool in theory it's a little buggy in practice but I still really 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 like the idea So where does this leave us? Because I've been thinking a lot about the application of big data. I'm not a big data scientist. I'm not getting into the details and things. But just the problems that are out there that can potentially be solved by big data. What are they and how can we solve them? Or at least how do we make use of the data we already have? We have seen Pro Cycling's first attempts through Robbie Ketchell and Slipstream Sports. Now that Ketchell has moved to Sky, no doubt this technology is going to take another leap. He's focused the most energy on data capture, management and optimization out of anybody else in cycling. And now you add that to a big budget. It's exciting to think about what they're doing right now in some secret squirrel lab. He has already admitted creating wearables from scratch. So that's pretty exciting. And to remind you what he has already developed, it's called Platypus a database that contains information on every rider in the race it's monitoring. When riders get into a break, Platypus loads them into the app and you can click on the stats, the breaks they've been in, how often they succeed, and other historical data. Ketchell says directors in the car have real-time direct access to a companion app Ketchell created that runs on Apple devices the team uses. Also, weather forecasts and real-time conditions are part of this, but that's easy. Information about riders in a race or a breakaway is kind of easy as well, but linking performance data to individual riders and predicted data of other riders could be the next step. If you're curious about the evolution of artificial intelligence or AI, there is plenty of directions AI can go. Platypus is an example of artificial narrow intelligence. It's AI that specializes in one area. A non-cycling version of this is Deep Blue, the AI that can beat the world chess champion in chess. But that's the only thing it does. Beyond AI is Artificial General Intelligence, AGI, a machine that can perform any intellectual task that a human being can. Finally, there is Artificial Superintelligence. Artificial Superintelligence ranges from a computer that's just a little smarter than a human to one that's trillions of times smarter across the board. But definitely by the time this stuff rolls out, we're either going to be dead from the machines or under some next level shit. Right now, it seems that decision 
decision optimization is the main tool used here to take the data from numbers to action. At the moment, we have predictive analytics like best bike split, but not yet have we got something that helps us win real bike races, not time trials, but ones with other riders. Endless scenarios can play out in a race, and this is where the experience of you, your team, your DS, your manager, all gets put into play. But how can this problem be solved from a computer standpoint? How can we use data for racing outcomes rather than just performance outcomes? What if there was some way that we could make decisions in a race combining the physical and tactical elements, knowing how much you can give the history of the riders around you, who might go when, who's a threat, a database of scenarios with the most likely ones ranked in order so you can make a decision of how to race. This is when big data will get real, crunching real-time data and giving the best outcomes based on all of these different elements that can change at any moment. It seems impossible, but I guess at one point, Deep Blue did as well. Now let's get to the tech hacks and product section, and it's a product this week called Sense by Hello, and I spoke about this a long, 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 long time ago. I backed this on Kickstarter back in September of 2014. It finally arrived on my doorstep in May of 2015. That's a lesson for people that back Kickstarter products. Since then, I've been using it every night, which is my first comment. That's the best thing about it. It has been used every night because it's automatic. It automatically happens. It automatically records when I get into bed, when I go to sleep, when I get up. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to put anything on your head before bed, nothing to turn on. It'll just sit there and it's a separate standalone unit and it's a globe that connects to the power and Wi-Fi and sits on your bedside table. And then there's a sleep pill that clips onto your pillow and that's what picks up the movement. I have two of these, one for me and one for my wife. We both have the Sense app on our phones. This is another cool part that it all links together. So it just works in that sense. But overall, I've got to say it's quite simplistic. It's worthwhile to me because I have it and I paid for it, but I actually wouldn't recommend it. Since the release of the Sense, there's been a bunch of other competitors come out, including what's called the Bedit, which is more suited to athletes, I believe, because it includes data from heart rate and respiration, amongst other things. So as an athlete, this is going to be more valuable to you than what is currently available from the Sense, which is temperature, humidity, light, sound, and then it gives you a graphical representation of your sleep, and then that turns that into a number, and then that's the kind of number that you use to gauge your sleep over time. An interesting insight into my sleep is I'm in bed probably eight or nine hours a night, but I only generally sleep between maybe one and a half to a maximum of two and a half two hours and 45 minutes, and that's it. That's my deep sleep period. So when you get to bed at 10 and then you're getting up at 7 or whatever, you're kidding yourself to think that you're getting an entire eight hours sleep. It takes so much to get to sleep, and, well, for some people, it takes a lot to get to sleep. But also, you can see the influence of things that you've had before bed, whether you had a late dinner, some alcohol, Um, you had a big training day or, you know, all of these things kind of add to this. 
And that's where I think having other metrics like heart rate and respiration would add to this. So you have a better understanding to see what your body is actually doing at the time rather than just picking some random number, which then becomes somewhat meaningless, is somewhat meaningful, but overall it doesn't give you a really accurate picture of exactly what is happening to your body and why you didn't sleep well. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Adam Hansen. Adam just completed... His 11th Grand Tour. This is a record because it's in a row. He actually beat the last best, which is Marino Lagerretta, which he recorded 10 in a row. So Adam has got another year or more in him, I reckon. So he may be able to smash this out. It's a bit of a weird record to have, but I thought there must be something that he loves about it. it not just the competing or whatever. I think it is being treated like a bit of a rock star. So I hunted down a little bit of an insight into what his life on tour is like. Do you abide by international standards of lights off in the bathroom, even in the middle of the night? Of course, lights off in the bathroom. <laughs> and I couldn't help but notice there's a set of weighing scales outside your door. Now, those are team weighing scales, right? But what's, what's the deal? Half the riders don't use them. They're too afraid to, <laughs> but they're there just to... <laughs> Make you think twice about the food you take. Next to the bowl of fruit, which is uh, very fitting. In this one, we've got drinks. Um, Aquarius, which is like, uh, it's a sports drink, water, a lot of Coke Zero, so we don't put on too many calories. And here we have um, just the fruit, basically, apples, bananas, and then we have fresh fruit cut up from our cook. We have rice pudding, which is very, very nice. It's just been put there. And then in here is um, basically just snacks. As you can see, we've got Haribo, which um, doesn't last very long. We have um, soya pudding, which is very good for the non-lactose people. Rice cakes, muesli bars, some very, very healthy cereal. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the food of champions. That's right, champions we are. (laughs) And that's it. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Supplements, the cycling performance guide that I put together. It helps you discover the best combination of supplements to reach your cycling goals even faster and not waste your money on hyped up products. Go to semiprocycling.com forward slash supplements to buy the guide. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 